Azubillahiminashaitanirajim, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I seek refuge in Allah from Satan the Accursed. In the name of Allah the Gracious, the Ever Merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is another Friday, uh, Friday the 23rd of February 2024. The time is 4.03 p.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia and Imam Reza Ahmed live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. And as is the norm, we've uh, brought two topics for you today. The first topic is about mandatory military service or military conscription. And that we will start um, right after these announcements. Uh, and we shall continue that until 5 p.m. And from 5 to 6, we shall talk about ageism and uh, the social biases around ageism. And we'll enter into a discussion with uh, quite a number of guests on that as well. This is a live show and the number to call is 0208-687-7878. So please, please do give us a call. If you want to contribute to the show, if you want to share with us anything or if you want to agree or disagree with anything that we say here. Right. And therefore, without uh, further ado, let's delve right into the first topic, which is about mandatory military service. So mandatory military service or military conscription is a strategy which is used by many countries to build uh, a larger or a more powerful military ready to be deployed in times of war or when the need to protect the sovereignty of a state arises. Many governments in history have used it and um, this uh, idea goes as far back as the Qin Empire back in China in 2021 BC. Um, more recently, um, France has used uh, France uh, used it during um, and after the French Revolution, and some countries even today require compulsory military service service for its uh, citizens. So the required period, however, of military service is short in some countries or shorter than others. In some countries, in Denmark, for instance, all able-bodied men are required to serve a minimum of four months between the ages of 18 and 27. Other countries, including Iran and Israel, may require two or more years of service, of mandatory military service uh, for its citizens. Cuba, North Korea, Tunisia, Eritrea and Norway have mandatory military service for women citizens as well uh, as um, uh, and another country that immediately comes to mind uh, is Singapore, which also requires mandatory uh, military service uh, for its um, uh, for the male citizens uh, in Singapore. It would seem that the viability of conscription at a particular place and time is directly proportional to the popularity of the war being fought at the time or I should say the need of uh, a larger army as well. When a war is seen as just by a population, they are more willing to contribute to the war effort, providing even the greatest sacrifice for what is seen as a righteous cause. A society that initially accepts the rights of individuals eventually deteriorates to a general acceptance of nationalism and conscription. Today, the idea of a national army is taken for granted, and the limit, the legitimacy of um, um, 
uh, of of the draft is actually not questioned in many uh, societies and many countries as well. The only question is whether or not it should be used in any specific situation. If unjust wars have been declared and fought by our government of recent years, it's not the servicemen or women that are to blame. The role of a soldier is not to make complex political decisions or even sometimes to make even military decisions, but simply to follow orders and defend their nation. Soldiers cannot be held accountable for the transgressions of their governments or their politicians. So even if, hypothetically speaking, British soldiers were in some way culpable for the death of uh, innocent civilians around the world, the example of uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam Muhammad, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, suggests that the um, um, that things like the poppy appeal should still be considered uh, causes that um, we should support, or um, uh, even other causes which help uh, disabled servicemen or um, indeed their children. Prophet Muhammad, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was known for helping wounded enemy soldiers even during the heat of the battle. With regards to prisoners of war, he was extremely careful to treat them as well as he treated members of his own family and freed many of them at the earliest opportunity. So um, that is the, the important point that, um, that must be made here. So even during times of defensive warfare, the Prophet Muhammad, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, forbade injustice always striving to attain reconciliation at the earliest opportunity. Um, as I said, even in the heat of the battle, he advised his followers, do not kill women and children, nor religious recluses, that is, religious leaders. Do not kill the elderly. Create peace in the land and treat the people with benevolence for sure. Allah loves the benevolent. The worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmad, the fifth head, may Allah be his helper, uh, conveys this message regularly that honouring those who fought to defend and safeguard one's country is an important principle of Islam and in fact is an important principle of peace. He recently said, and I quote, First and foremost, a fundamental principle of Islam is that a person's words and deeds should never manifest any form or any form of double standards or hypocrisy. True loyalty requires a relationship built on sincerity and integrity. It requires that a person displays on the surface to be the same as what lies beneath. In terms of nationality, these principles are of the utmost importance. Therefore, it is essential for a citizen of any country to establish a relationship of genuine loyalty and faithfulness to his nation. It does not matter whether he is a born citizen or whether he gains citizenship later in life, either through immigration or by any other means. End of quote. Let me now go to our first guest for um, this segment, who is Matthew Anthony and he is an expert on nationalism and war. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Uh, thanks, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Excellent, <coughs> lovely to be, to be 
talking to you, um, Matthew. So uh, let me start by asking you uh, your views on uh, uh, on compulsory um, military service, even in times of peace. Uh, sure. Uh, let me start by saying I'm not a philosopher or an ethicist. <laughs> I'm mainly a historian and political scientist. So sure. uh, I have my own views, but I can also tell you uh, historically how conscription uh, has worked. The, the, the first and we'd love mass to find out. Sure. Conscription, yeah. Sure. The first mass conscription is associated with the aftermath of the French Re Revolution. Uh, it was called the uh, Levé en masse. It was when uh, soldiers were recruited uh, from the peasantry. Uh, they learned French, which was not a widespread national language at the time. And it was, uh, it was combined with uh, uh, public education for the first time, also in French. So it was a way of solidifying uh, national sentiment and peasants were recruited. Before that, uh, warfare was mainly a, an elite uh, matter. Professional soldiers uh, provided through the feudal system and so forth. Uh, nowadays, countries uh, have conscripted soldiers, as you said, both in peacetime uh, and uh, as, uh, as the threat of war emerges. Most societies now think that there should be uh, an option for uh, the recruits to engage in uh, some kind of non-military service as an alternative. So we refer to conscientious objectors, people who object uh, on principle to violence, uh, and sometimes, uh, as in the era of the Vietnam War, the U.S. war in Vietnam, to the specific war. But that's, uh, that's not widely held. It's not widely available, that alternative nonviolent service. Do you think that this is a, a, an old concept and there is no need for it in, in the modern world? I mean, you mentioned Vietnam, you mentioned French Revolution as well, where it all started. Uh, many of the wars of the French Revolution were aggressive. Vietnam War was certainly aggressive. Um, many of the recent wars that we've seen in history are as well. So do you think this is it's even required or or, uh, or do you think this is still in need uh, being fulfilled for the um, uh, for building empires? So it's it's a great question. So what is the alternative for a country that wants to raise an army and fight big wars, if not mass conscription of ordinary people? It would be to have a professional army. Uh, the, and that's increasingly been the case, especially since the end of the Cold War, when the prospect of a major war uh, with, between the Soviet Union and the NATO countries, for example, uh, disappeared. The problem with having a professional army, and we see it in the United States, is that it creates a kind of two-tiered system where only a minority of the population serves in the military. In the U.S., it tends to be geographically isolated to the the South uh, and the West, for example, and it becomes increasingly partisan and generational so that there are military families, they tend to vote Republican, and they tend to be geographically concentrated. So it's not a very democratic process, especially if you think that wider spread uh, 
service would make people pay more attention to the wars that their country uh, is fighting. Right. So, so essentially, then it is, it, it is a, a need for those countries who want to, who have, um, uh, who who are ambitious. Let let's just say euphemistically. Well, so if if you think about countries that, uh, and I have no trouble calling them uh, imperialistic or yeah. uh, ambitious or expansionist, <laughs> yeah, I was depending polite. on yeah. their resources, depending on their resources, they might do better with a professional army. Because if they recruited more broadly, the recruits would have to pay attention. Their families would have to pay attention. They might say, you know, why are we, uh, to give an example that a lot of people never knew about in the United States, why do we have soldiers in Niger anyway? I didn't even know that. The Congress, Mm -hmm. which has the war power in the United States, never approves that. That's so much easier to do when you have a, a professional army, when you have special forces, when you don't have democratic accountability. So when I was uh, first getting started in this field, one of my mentors was uh, Randall Forsberg. She was a, a peace researcher and an activist, uh, the founder of the nuclear weapons freeze movement, but also a campaigner against military intervention on the part of the United States and the Soviet Union. And she argued that a universal draft of men and women would make the the American public pay more attention to the wars that its Mm. government gets it involved in. And again, there should, most people would say there has to be an alternative service, uh, not only uh, for people who don't believe in uh, in violence, but that kind of national service, you know, assuming the government has enough legitimacy to to summon it, would, uh, would lead to a more accountable government and a more accountable foreign policy. Sure. Um, going back to uh, to the uh, to where you you said uh, this all began in the modern history, which is the during the French Revolution, um, uh, you mentioned that uh, French was not the language at that time. So, so number one, what language uh, did uh, most people speak then? And uh, the other was that how was it received by the general populace? The country was obviously going through a revolution at that time. So how was uh, the idea uh, under Napoleon received? Sure. So, so, so the languages spoken in France varied quite a bit from a, a kind of uh, Celtic uh, language in Brittany really? uh, in Normandy, uh, close to to Irish, uh, in the in the south in the the area of um, uh, today's Provence. It was called Languedoc, which was a uh, a, a language that derived from Latin, but independently. Uh, from French, so so there were many. It, it was it was really the uh, the army and public education that got people to speak French. The army, as a practical matter, so that the soldiers could receive orders uh, and education, because not only does it teach a language, but it also in, imbibes the mm. uh, students with the national sentiments of of the country, a patriotism, a feeling for France. Uh, whereas uh, before people's loyalties were mainly local. So it's it's a, it's a mixed bag in a, in a way. A, a lot of people think that having a coherent uh, nation state is, is valuable, that it led to progress of certain kinds. Uh, other people feel sen- sentimental about 
the local traditions. Uh, when I was uh, a student in the 1970s hitchhiking around uh, France, it was a time when there was a lot of resurgence of uh, the local sentiment, trying to revive those languages that had been almost erased really? uh, by French. Wow. Uh, so, so that and that's something that we, you know, that we still see in the in the Basque uh, mm. areas of uh, of France and Spain, uh, the secessionist sure. uh, movement in Spain, for example. So, uh, so those are still sentiments that are that are out there, and they run contrary to. Uh, the nationalism that's provoked, pr- that's promoted by a national army based on conscription. Right. So coming to the to the modern times again, um, current times. Do you think you mentioned patriotism, nationalism? Do you think this is more of an agenda around creating a sentiment of jingoism rather than uh, just patriotism? It, it, it depends on the particular case. If a country is, is relatively secure, uh, like the United States, like Britain, I would say, I mean, they're effectively islands. They don't get attacked uh, very often, certainly not by invasions of other armies. Uh, then in some respects, war is a, is a luxury, right? So you can, you can pursue uh, jingoistic uh, policies. Uh, in a country like Ukraine, for example, Ukraine doesn't have the luxury of saying, no, let's not do war sure. because uh, Ukraine was invaded. And, and and nationalism is such an interesting element of that because you know, everyone knows that uh, Ukraine has a mix uh, of languages, that some people in, in, in Crimea, in the, in the south and the east were rather sympathetic to Russia, at least Correct. Uh, culturally, though. The invasion that Putin launched has solidified uh, a national identity for Ukraine that didn't really exist before the war. So in that sense, it really backfired uh, for him. Uh, People who grew up speaking Russian all their lives have switched to Ukrainian just to make the point that we are Ukrainian. We don't think that that Russia should be taking over our territory. So so again, it varies quite a lot depending on, let's say, the geopolitical situation of the country, uh, whether conscription serves the interests of expansionism or or a more legitimate defense. And do these causes then, where in the cases that you've just mentioned, where uh, conscription is deemed necessary for national defense, then one would imagine um, it would make it easier for policymakers to um, uh, to circumvent the, any any ethical concerns or even the, a talk of uh, infringement of individual freedoms. Uh, yes, uh, for sure. And uh, Ukraine is a is a good example. Mm. The, the country really is at risk of uh, backsliding in the progress it's made uh, in democracy and uh, and civil rights and so forth under the pressure of war, which is uh, which is very common. I mean, already when the invasion happened, uh, men were not allowed to leave the country. So, so a basic freedom of movement was restricted right from the start. Uh, the the media in Ukraine, uh, television, which is still the main medium for uh, for most people, is restricted now to uh, one program that all of the channels have to have to broadcast. So these were emergency measures, but the longer they stay in, the more they risk um, 
undermining democracy there, and I, and that's a common effect of, uh, of, of war. Sure. So, in your uh, research around nationalism and war, and and these concepts go hand in hand. Have you encountered instances where conscription um, can be and has been ethically justified um, or even condemned? So a lot of the cases I looked at were uh, secessionist movements, so groups mm. that had, uh, let's say, a national identity but not uh, their own state. So the, the French speakers in Quebec in, uh, in the Canadian uh, Federation uh, for example, and the when when people have uh, an antipathy to the central government and are seeking more autonomy, they're less likely to support the goals, uh, the foreign policy goals of that country. So, in the case of of Quebec during World War II, uh, Canada, as part of the British Commonwealth, joined the war against Nazi Germany. But a lot of Quebecers were not so interested uh, and and were, were rather hostile to conscription. Uh, an earlier example that that people in Britain will be familiar with was, was uh, Ireland, when Ireland was seeking uh, independence uh, during World War One, It mm. did not want to fight on behalf of, uh, of, of Britain. And we still have the legacy in the Republic of Ireland of, of neutrality stemming from from that period. So, so depending on the attitude towards uh, the dominant nationality of, of the state or, or the federation, certain groups uh, will be uh, more or less supportive of, of conscription and fighting, fighting that country's wars. How did the Canadian government of the time um, handle the Quebec situation? Well, people who in in Quebec who shirked uh, conscription were were jailed. Mm. It's, it's the common it's the common response to to countries uh, when their when their citizens who are who are drafted for military service refuse or try to to sure. evade it. I mean, unless they have lots of money and <laughs> and lawyers mm. to help them, they uh, they suffer uh, those kind of consequences being jailed. And. Do the the people in which um, military conscription is universal, even today, uh, use such measures as well, like jailing people if they don't um, if they don't join? So, I would say the more powerful a country it is, the less it has to rely on coercive measures. So, to give again the example of the United States, we don't have mass conscription, but we do have obligatory registration for a potential future draft. And so all young men, when they turn 18, are obliged to register. If they do not, they they aren't arrested, but they, for example, become ineligible for any government-supplied uh, loans for higher education, which are, are, are quite essential. You know, our higher education system is the most expensive in the, hmm. in the world. So there are those kinds of government benefits that are denied them. So it's a, it's a subtler uh, form of, uh, of coercion, let's say, that doesn't require jailing people. 
Sure. Yeah. And, and what you're saying is uh, about, you know, the more powerful you are, the, the less coercion you need. I mean, rings so true because um, uh, Singapore is, is, I think, a good example where people um, are, um, are certainly given punishment, uh, if not jailing. And I think some people are actually jailed as well if, if they do not join that, that uh, compulsory military service. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's. I mean, it's the it's the ultimate uh, measure that that governments have mm. is uh, it's, if uh, if recruits or uh, or draftees avoid service, they certainly can be jailed. So that brings me nicely to the next question, which is: Do you think there are any universal ethical principles that should guide the implementation of conscription policies? I would think the most basic one is to provide an alternative uh, for people who are committed to nonviolence. And that would not be a bad thing, I think, to be, for countries that could use uh, young people doing types of service that are broadly beneficial to the society rather than just uh, joining the army mm. uh, again, whether and, and a lot of people have put forward this uh, proposal for uh, for my country because I, as I d- described before, there's a the professionalization of the military has meant that that a very small minority has anything at stake uh, in U.S. wars and even during the Vietnam War when there was broad conscription, uh, that you know the sons of politicians would surely uh, be able to avoid service. Anyone who went to university had a a deferment and didn't have to serve. So a a broader system of national service would would build a kind of national identity, but not necessarily around around wars if there were an alternative. So, So I would say if there is a general ethical principle, it should be that people should be allowed to do uh, non-military service as as an alternative, whether it's because they have a principled commitment to non-violence or whether because they recognize the particular wars that their country is involved in as uh, as illegitimate or unethical. Mm. Matthew, I'll be doing myself injustice and to the to the station as well if I didn't ask you more on nationalism, given your expertise on that subject as well. So if I can. Uh, uh, I can start by asking, how do you define nationalism? What is nationalism in in this century, in the modern century? I think we tend to have a, a definition of nationalism that focuses on its uh, negative aspects, uh, a, a valorization of one's own nationality against uh, others, a kind of xenophobia. Uh, my uh, late colleague Benedict Anderson uh, became famous for his work on on nationalism uh, in his book Imagined Communities, and he was often considered a skeptic of nationalism. But his uh, his work on on Southeast Asia, which was his original area of regional expertise, uh, made him actually value uh, national sentiment that could bring. Uh, disparate people speaking different languages, having different religious traditions, and so forth, uh, together. So, so I think it's not necessarily a, a negative thing. We, we tend to associate associate it again with exclusion, and because of 
the way I've approached nationalism, looking at secessionist movements, hmm. it was typically a source of, of violence. Uh, I mean, Quebec was the except, exceptional case Correct. for me because there was yeah. a, a very brief uh, period of violence and even terrorism, but then uh, Quebec uh, autonomy became subject to the to the ballot box and referenda and negotiations between Quebec and the and the federal government. So, you yeah, mentioned so that was a long answer that didn't give you a definition. <laughs> no, no, that's <laughs> fine. But I, you mentioned something very interesting towards the end, which is you mentioned nationalism and uh, and terrorism in um, in the same sentence. Um, I want to understand it a bit more uh, from you. So, you know, uh, you mentioned it in the context of Quebec. So let's take Quebec's example. Uh, from a Quebec standpoint, weren't they freedom fighters or... Um, uh, or, or even a resistance movement. So, so this is a key question about uh, about definitions. Hmm. The the National Liberation Front, as you can guess by its name, from Quebec, modeled itself on third world liberation movements and, and was inspired uh, by that. Uh, it's always the opponents of those movements that declare that they are. They are terrorists. Yeah. You know, we we can ha- we can have a you know a reasonably objective definition of terrorism that focuses on say random killing of civilians for you know who they are rather than anything that they've done, and that would make the Quebec case a bit uh, ambiguous because uh, the incidents that I mentioned happened in October 1970 when uh, the NLF kidnapped a uh, British trade minister and another political figure, and one of them ended up uh, dying in the in the course of it. So it was a uh, it was a case of violence against not random violence against civilians against somebody that you could argue had some kind of uh, political responsibility, but it, it's not quite. Uh, the the violence that a resistance movement would engage in, say, against an occupying military force or something like that. So again, it's a bit uh, it's a bit ambiguous. Uh, states always mm-hmm. prefer to call terrorism any kind of violence directed against them, you know, even against their their military forces, if yeah, it's by sure. a non-state actor. Yeah, but I mean, it 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 begs the question then that you know the. Um... Quebec, you gave the example. The other example that comes to mind is that of uh, the Afghan Mujahideen, which in the 80s um, uh, were fighting uh, the Soviets. And because the Western alliance was was funding them, was assisting them, they were heroes uh, and even romantic heroes of that time, if I can say that. Um, But uh, I'm sure to, to Russians, they would have been terrorists. And and we now have a similar narrative. We see uh, so many cases. I mean, we see them in the Middle East. There's a war going on. So, I mean, do you think this is an easy scapegoat to to just, you know, label the other party as terrorist without really looking at what is it, what, what the underlying causes and what the un- underlying issues are and a lazy stereotype? Well, I guess the way I look at it is that it's it's normal for us to think that violence against civilians should be considered a crime. 
And no matter what one's cause, if it's national defense or if it's some kind of national liberation movement or secessionist movement, we think there's just something wrong about indiscriminately killing civilians. Agreed. The issue is that states have the power to dominate the discourse and how we talk about this, not to mention the laws, the international and and domestic laws. Hmm. So they can stigmatize non-state armed groups for engaging in that kind of violence, but they can get away with doing it themselves. Yeah, exactly. They can get um, away by uh, calling it uh, collateral damage and 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 kill thousands exactly. in that in that process, as we are we saying now. Exactly. So it seems to me that if states really want to make their judgment that non-state armed actors shouldn't in or non-state actors supporting certain political causes shouldn't engage in violence that risks uh, or civilian harm or directly targets civilians, they have two obligations, it seems to me. One is that they should be abiding by those restrictions themselves. And as we've seen, especially in in the war against Gaza, the war in Ukraine, those restrictions that come from international uh, laws of war are are very flexible and, and hardly do anything to protect civilians. So that's one obligation that the states have that they're clearly not adhering to. The other obligation is they have to provide a means for nonviolent social change, uh, because after all, most groups would not be taking up arms if they thought that they could work effectively, nonviolently through the normal political institutions. Uh, the example I gave of Quebec is that fortunately it happened that that way that the brief period of of violence against uh, civilians. Uh, ended well with almost a declaration of martial law in Canada, but then eventually evolved into a more normal political situation. But that's that's rather rare. And instead, we see states uh, condemning uh, movements for political change as terrorists, but not providing an alternative and certainly not providing an example Mm. of protecting civilians in their own use of violence. So then do you think, is it, is it not easy or or actually um nationalism as a as a concept or as a as a force then um would it be fair to say that it can only be viewed in a positive light if it is something which is uh, a narrative which is run by the government or run by the force of the media rather than um a, a resistance movement which 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 you know, uh, I think we we both can agree that you know there is a nationalist sentiment there, but in terms of branding it as as nationalism, you know, becomes problematic. So is it, a, you know, is it only a tool or a uh, or a a movement or a name or a label which is only available to to those who have the narrative and who control the media and and the government? It it, it often seems that way because I think in the absence of a central government creating the the myths that are supposed to unify a nation. I think most people's allegiances would be more local, mm. starting with their families and then their local communities and so forth, maybe regional. So nationalism as a as a project, I think, does have to come from the 
from the top down, and that's typically how we've how we've seen it. Uh, either that, or um, uh, or a historian uh, writing after many decades, uh, branding something as as a nationalist movement, uh, because uh, I think uh, there is too much happening in the um, uh, in the current affairs of uh, of any conflict that. Uh, it would be branded as uh, as nationalism, uh, a resistance movement. That is, uh, Matthew Anthony Evang- Evangelista. Thank you very much for for joining us. It was lovely speaking with you. Really a pleasure. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners as well. Uh, have a lovely weekend. Thank and you. Peace be with you. Thanks thank so you. much. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Thank okay. you, sir. Bye bye. Bye bye. So that was Matthew Anthony. Evangelista, who is an expert on nationalism and war, and um, yeah, certainly um, you would have deciphered that deciphered that he certainly is an expert, given what he's shared with us uh, over the past uh, few minutes. Right. Uh, let me now go uh, straight to uh, another interview that uh, my colleague uh, Raza Ahmed uh, conducted with uh, Brandon Allenby, Allenby earlier. Brandon Allenby, who is an expert in the Department of Defense, Military Technologies and War. Let's listen in. Joining us now on the Draft Time Show is Brad Allenby. He's an expert in the Department of Defense, Military Technologies, as well as War. Brad, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Thank you, Raza. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, Right. I want to start off by asking you the topic that we're talking about, conscription, something that came up in the news a couple of days ago, which a lot of people actually had had no idea. Uh, I know a certain generation probably never heard that word before. So tell us a bit about how conscription, uh, conscription has been implemented in the past, how how its ethical dimensions may have evolved over time and how do we see it in today's day and age? Well, thank you, Raza. It's a, it's a difficult uh, issue. It's very complex. Modern conscription, you can probably trace it uh, to the French Revolution, uh, the Armée en masse, uh, Napoleon's citizen army. Uh, there was conscription of a type before that going back to ancient Babylon, but of course it varied depending on the culture and the empire. And I think that's important to realize about conscription today too. It varies depending on the national culture, uh, the politics uh, of the particular country, and it also varies depending on how threatened that country feels. So for example, uh, Israel has had uh, universal conscription of a kind. Uh, since the state was founded in 1948. Uh, The United States had conscription during Vietnam, uh, but then shifted to a volunteer army at the beginning of 1973. Uh, The British in 1960 decided that they didn't like conscription very much at all. Uh, So it depends on the country, it depends on the culture. But the basic idea of conscription is that you are required to provide uh, usually military service for a specific length of time. Uh, One or two years is is very common. Now, in today's day and age, Brad, how in in the society that we live in, how how do you think what what are the ethical implications of, of conscription 
in contemporary society keeping in mind that you have well speaking about the uk for example you have so many different people from different backs, right. backgrounds different ethnic ethnic ethnical backgrounds religions races you name it so when we talk about for example uh the us and vietnam uh, israel is a different uh, example but that seems to be somewhat somewhere in the past times yes. change dramatically drastically in certain countries what what would that look like today well the in uh, today's world most countries have moved to a volunteer military for a number of reasons uh most of which are practical and political not ethical uh among other things a voluntary military military is easier for a uh national leader to commit because you don't get the public response that you do if you're committing uh everybody's children uh to a military adventure very unlikely for example that the war in iraq uh for the us would have unfolded the way it did if we had had conscription hmm. uh the politics simply wouldn't have allowed it in general the ethical issues tend to fall into a couple of of domains um the um the first is uh religious uh conscientious objection of various kinds has been permitted by a number of states uh it essentially amounts to saying my personal religious conviction prevents me from participating in military activities mm. uh many countries will say okay that's fine then you can do a uh, national service of some sort medical perhaps domestic service uh the second is sexism most conscription programs uh obvious exception are countries like Israel but in the United States for example most conscription programs tended to focus on males because it tended to be the males that were sent into combat so you focused on on male conscripts so there was a charge that this was sexist and unfair to males or unfair to females depending on your perspective uh the third is um political objections and this one gets a little tricky uh and it's also one i think of the strengths of um conscription the politics uh may prevent a country from going to war because the civilian population is unwilling to see its its children conscripted to fight that war uh you can take that as being a negative of conscription but you can also take it as a positive that having uh, uh citizens engaged personally in a decision about whether their country should go to war is a good thing uh so conscription in that sense would be uh morally uh, and ethically desirable uh finally you have ideological arguments and these tend to come up in libertarian countries like the United States uh the argument being that that my personal liberty should not be infringed by forcing me to join the military the uh this goes back to i mean deep into into philosophy of of many different cultures uh Kant for example saying you shouldn't ever treat an individual as a means not as an ends categorical imperative 
But of course, the military always does that, right? You send people out knowing that they're going into an environment where they're going to get killed. Uh, that's part of what the military does. So it, that's kind of an interesting argument, but uh, it's not an argument I think that's very powerful against conscription in general, because when a state is threatened, uh, it will do a lot of things to protect itself, including abridging uh, individual rights. In today's... Yeah, sorry, I think coming, coming to today, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're going to get there. In today's world, and I think the 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 reaction that we've seen online social media you know even speaking to to people from from different walks of life this is probably the greatest problem that people have with um apart from them not being fit for it and whatever reasons they're giving but i think that is one reason that i have come across personally the most no well it, it it's a very powerful argument, but it kind of folds in, I think, to the ethical question about the, what the relationship and the duty is of the citizen vis-a-vis -vis the state, uh, which is, I think, being renegotiated today, as you point out, in many ways. Uh, I think that, that a part of what conscription offers, though, is a counterbalance to the increasing um, fragmentation of cultures. For example, the United States has gotten very tribal in terms of its politics, as well as, as other countries have too. I mean, you can see it across Europe with, with the rise of the, uh, 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 the right and, and the far right. What conscription can do is it, it pushes people together in ways that they otherwise would not be pushed together. And it helps them overcome the sense that other groups in their own society are in fact the other, that are evil for one sense or another or, or fundamentally different or whatever. When you're in the military, being trained together, it creates a knowledge of, of your country that can be very valuable. Uh, full disclosure, I was, um, uh, had a very low draft number in the Vietnam War, so I joined the military uh, because of the pressure of of uh, of the draft, and uh, and it was a very uh, enlightening experience for me because it required me to work with people from across all of American culture, and I think that that's a value of conscription that we overlook. Now you don't have to do conscription only for military purposes, which means that in order to alleviate some of the concerns that, that you're talking about, uh, you could have national service as an option for conscripted individuals uh, who had objections about uh, a particular military uh, um, decision or, or a war going on or whatever. Uh, the the difficulty that, that the state has now with citizens asserting their supremacy over state interests is one that is going to be constantly negotiated, I think, in the future. And I think that's part of the uh, conscription debate. Uh, I think that's unavoidable. Well, why do you think that is, though? I mean, we're, we're, I, know, I know times were different back then uh, when, when we were talking about the Vietnam War, when we're talking about you know, different countries implementing that in the past. 
What what has changed today? I mean, when when we talk about having a, na- a balance between you know national security imperatives with individual rights and freedoms in this context, does a country actually have to keep this in mind? Doesn't that, for me as a citizen, doesn't that become my duty to 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 play my part if I have enjoyed all the freedoms and the rights and the protections in the past fifty, sixty years, or whoever, uh, whatever your age is? Doesn't that become automatically my 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 duty? Morally? I think I think that I, I, this is a again uh, this is a huge ongoing debate, uh, much bigger than conscription. I think that that the the argue the hmm, how do I put this? The sense of duty has lessened over yeah. time, and I think that there's far more interest in uh, the benefits of being part of a state and far less interest in perhaps the responsibilities that go along with it. Uh, The ideal would be a political structure that overcomes that by creating, say, national service, not necessarily military, uh, as part of an obligation uh, of all citizens. But we're not seeing that. The the political systems themselves are beginning to break down and fragment. And so what that means is that the uh, forces that used to hold society together in general, a sense of duty, a sense of mutual responsibility to each other, those are weakening. And the fragmentation into uh, very different, highly politicized tribal groups is accelerating. Uh, conscription, if you could do it, uh, would help alleviate that or at least uh, dampen it. Uh, But I think the problem is that conscription requires accepting a sense of duty that in today's world, many people would reject. Wonderful. Brad, thank you very much for for your time. It was absolutely a pleasure to to talk to you. Um, And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Raza. Anytime. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Back uh, live here, and you were just listening to uh, a conversation between my colleague um, Raza Ahmed, Imam Raza Ahmed, and Brandon Ellenby, who is an expert in the Department of Defense, Military Technologies, and War. Brad, yes, so um, over to you, uh, Brother Raza. So, your thoughts uh, we are coming up, uh, you know, we're only about five, six minutes left. Uh, how would you conclude this uh, this segment on conscription on military service uh, from an Islamic um, standpoint? I, you know, my mind go, takes me back to the to the earlier defensive wars yes. uh, within Islam uh, <clears throat> wars um, of uh, Badr, Uhud, and uh, and Khandak fought during the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam. Maybe some blessings of Allah be upon him. Yes, exactly. And and uh, I think that's uh, going back to the time of the Holy Prophet. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, when the Holy Quran speaks about this uh, permission to fight has been given to those who have been wronged, who have been persecuted for their beliefs, and it was a long time that led up to this permission. Uh, in the early years, I believe it was almost 13 years of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that he spent in, in the city of Mecca, <clears throat> where you know, Islam grew very slowly but steadily. 
And when the persecution began and uh, it, it increased in its severity, a lot of the companions, they came up to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah, be upon him and said, you know, Prophet of Allah, it's not like we don't know how to fight, mm. but you need to give us permission. But the Holy Prophet, he refused and he, he did not give them permission because that permission was not his to give. Mm. It was supposed to come from God Almighty. And when it did come after they had migrated, after they had left that place where persecution was being carried out on a daily basis, mm. even after they had migrated, when it didn't stop, that's when God Almighty gave the permission that, look, you have been persecuted for the reason of proclaiming that there's only one God. Mm -hmm. And if I did not give you permission now, then those who transgress, those who commit these atrocities, they would not even shy away from 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 destroying cloisters, from destroying churches, from destroying synagogues, and from destroying mosques. Yeah. So to uphold justice, to uphold the values of, of you know every human being around the world, that is your responsibility. And I think when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah, be upon him, when he says that loyalty and love to your nation is part of your faith, <clears throat> that puts everything into perspective, I think. The the conversation that I had with Brad Allenby, I think that's the, the last question that I asked him about as, as well, that 60 years ago, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have this discussion hmm. in in that big of a, you know, scale the question that we asked on on our poll for example is the answer is quite clear i mean if conscription was to happen if god forbid god forbid we were go to we were supposed to go to war mm. how many would actually uh, accept well right now eight percent say <laughs> they, they would accept 92 percent would would, yeah. would straight up refuse yeah. <clears throat> and that gives you this this dilemma that we have in in in, in society today, uh, I believe that a lot of this has, as Brad mentioned, is political affiliation is mm. is not agreeing with what you as a country, as a nation, as an army, what you represent and w which direction exactly, which mm. direction you're headed to. Mm. But I think His Holiness said this. I believe it was in one of the speeches that he gave in 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 Germany at the the army headquarters of 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 the german army and he said that this 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 is your choice if you believe that you are joining an army or the army that you are part of that is going to war with a nation which clearly is not justified which clearly would be a breach uh, or would be cruel for example then you have that choice to leave that army because if you don't, then you would be assisting cruelty. And that is something that a Muslim should not, uh, is not supposed to do. Upholding justice, the values of justice, that at the end of the day is, is the underlying, um, how would you say it, the, 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 the compass basically that we need to uphold. Even freedom of conscience, I think. That's, yes, of uh, course. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> I think if you read those verses, and I think probably would be a good idea to uh, just repeat those verses um, for our listeners. So these are from chapter 22, verses 39 and 40. And there's, um, the translation of those verses as follows. Permission to fight is hereby granted to those on whom war is waged. And Allah is truly capable of helping them prevail. There are those who have been expelled from their homes for no reason other than pro proclaiming Allah is our Lord. 
had Allah not repelled the aggression of some people by means of others, destruction would have surely claimed monasteries, churches, synagogues, and mosques in which Allah's name is oft repeated. Allah will certainly help those who stand up for him. Allah is truly all-powerful, almighty, end of quote. So, yeah, um, absolutely all of what you said. And, and I think also important that um, mosques is mentioned right at the end. At the very course. end, yeah. yeah. So that tells you again for a Muslim, it's not it's not just about your own people. And I, th- I think the the promised Messiah, is, uh, the the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has a and then whom be peace. He he expanded that even to prayers. That if you only pray for your own people, then that's not right either. That compassion, that sympathy, that standing up for justice and, and you know, the voices for peace, that goes to to everyone in society so we don't say only certain yeah. lives matter every life matters absolutely and that uh, uh you know raises a natural question in my mind do you pray for me of course oh you do okay i told you i'll take your word for it then uh, 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 no doubts <laughs> no doubts but you were on the list when i went to when i went to omrah you know oh, was i all oh, right okay were. i'm i'm uh, i'm deeply indebted and uh, and honored indeed thank you very much right so that was our segment on uh, nationalism on um uh, on conscription on compulsory uh, military service. We will be discussing ageism in the next one hour. Please do stay tuned. Five o'clock news is next. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. As Allah the Almighty knew that my opponents would wish for my early demise so that they might be able to proclaim that I had died early because I was false in my claims, he revealed to me aforetime, ثمانين حولا أو قريبا من ذلك أو تزيد عليه سنين وترى نسلا بعيدا. That is, your age will be eighty years, a few years less or some years more, and you will live long enough to witness your distant progeny. Thirty-five years or so have passed since this revelation was vouchsafed. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Today with myself, Raza, and brother Daniel. Over the next hour, we are speaking about ageism. Now, the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon him, said that if a young man honors an elderly on account of his age, Allah appoints someone to honor him in his old age. For us as Muslims, I believe it's... It's a question that you don't really think about too much. It's it's something that you don't really have to contemplate too much because respect and honor of the elderly, um, giving them their due rights and and making sure that you do not, um, you know, upset them or 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 insult them in any way, form or shape is it's kind of a given, based on the teachings of Islam. Yeah. But unfortunately, we live in a society, we live in a time where it says that ageism is one of the last socially acceptable prejudices. So, <laughs> and I mean, this is according to the American Psychological Association. So it is, I think, as the word says. Although I, I disagree with that statement, given so many other uh, prejudices <laughs> going on uh, all around us these well, days. That's, so. that's according to the psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So as the word actually says, I'm sure you are aware that it's a form of discrimination based on age. It often goes unrecognized or, you know, is deemed socially acceptable despite, of course, its harmful impacts. So in this part of the program, we're going to explore the prevalences of ageism, its societal implications, of course, and the need uh, for greater awareness and action to address this form of prejudice, uh, particularly in the context of the pandemic that we went through a couple of years ago, which has increased this kind of prejudice in um, quite a lot. So there's a lot of factors that contribute to ageism. You have different stereotypes. They have different misconceptions, meaning they they are all often you know stereotyped as 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 frail, as technologically inept. I mean, this is something that I think we might be. Um, <laughs> guilty of as well sometimes, um, or or just you know incapable of contributing meaningfully to society, and there's so many more that we can actually go through. But let's just start off with our first guest for this part of the program. Joining us now on the show to discuss this matter is Emily Swaim. She's sorry, a ger- no, it's 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 uh, James Lewis. Oh, sorry, it's yeah. James Lewis. Yes, he's the founder of Actions for Action for uh, Elderly for Action for Elders. I do apologize, charity. And we're going to speak to James and ask him a few more questions about this topic. James, good afternoon. Peace upon you. And welcome to the Draft Time Show. Thank you. Peace upon you, too. And it's the first time I've been called Emily. <laughs> <laughs> There's a first time for everything, James, isn't it? <laughs> All right, James, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. Now, you started a charity which is focused on combating ageism. I started off by, by you know, the show by... Looking at, for example, my upbringing, looking at what my religion, my faith, my community, my societies, the ones that I've lived in, what they have given me. And, you know, maybe it's just me. But to be honest, I've this this was never a question that that I had to deal with because it was kind of understood that you give respect to those who are elderly um, regardless, um, because at the end of the day, one at one point in your life, you will be in their place. So if you don't give give respect, you don't get respect. Yes, and I, but I think that you know that is a a perspective of uh, of Islam in particular and the way that you've been brought up. Let's just put the whole thing of ageism into into a, a, a greater societal perspective. Sure. We are living in a society now where there are more people getting older than there are being born under the age of five. And this is not just here in the UK, but it, it's it's in other parts of the world as well. And I think that the whole thing about aging has to change because of this dynamic which is happening, which is older people, there are more older people living longer. So as a society, we've got to look at things differently. Now, ageism as an ism, and I heard you guys talking about the other, you know, isms like sexism and racism, but ageism is more recent. It was only a term that came about in 1969. And, and if I can, I'll explain how it came about. Sure. There was a psychiatrist called Robert Butler. Um, who lived in, in Washington, D.C. And he lived in a part of, of uh, D.C. that was quite, you know, well off and, and had a lot of neighbors that were worried about the fact that there was going to be a conversion of flats into a residential senior 
housing complex. And they were getting up in arms, if, you, if I can use that expression, about the sort of people that would come into their neighborhood, you know, people of walking sticks and, and wheelchairs, and they thought everything like that was going to happen. Now, Robert was not in favor of this negative stereotyping of people, older people. And so he invited a reporter uh, called Carl Bernstein from the Washington uh, Post to come and talk to him and interview him about this. And during this interview, he came up with the term of ageism. Now, Carl Bernstein, really, it was a light bulb moment for Carl. But, but unfortunately, and he was going to publicize this and write about it, but unfortunately, he got kind of, uh, went down a route where there was a greater scandal happening was called Watergate, and um, mm-hmm. Carl was then featured in the, in one of the one of the films, uh, which was played by Robert Redford, the actor. So, uh, but he's a distinguished journalist, and during that that interview with Robert Butler, um, he he began to think, how can we, you know, talk about and, and publicize ageism? And indeed, Rob he got Robert to write the book Why Survive Being Old in America, um, and that is how the term came about. But in terms of, of the ism itself, it's very recent. And we have to think, really, as a society, how we are going to tackle ageism. And I think there are a number of things that need to be done. First of all, there's tackling what I call structural ageism. And that is that there are a number of areas, and I can go into those, um, which have to be looked at. And including education, medicine, the media itself, a whole range of them. But first of all, what is to us fascinating as a charity is that we need to also examine how we look at, how we personally look at people getting old and how older people themselves look at the aging process. Because if you look at the aging process, aging is just another stage of life. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, we have, it has its challenges, just like you have your challenges when you're growing up, when you, you know, you're in, in starting a family, all of these stages of life. But it is just another stage of life. People look at ages, aging negatively. And even older people look at aging negatively. And therefore, our, if you like, education about ageism has to start with the individual. So it, it's really a bottom-up in terms of that structural liberation, top-down approach, which will change how how people address aging and how people look at ageism, because it's got to change, because society's changing. Hmm. You know, there will be no... People will not be retiring at a certain age, 20 years or maybe 25 years down the road. It, retirement will not be in people's minds because of the whole nature of what is happening to society. So ageism is incredibly important, but it has to be tackled on a number of different levels. Fully agree with you there. Uh, And when we talk about the number of different levels, um, education, I agree, is very important. Um, One level, of course, is is government support and, and the government to some extent, has, has gone down, I think, in recent years, but still continues support here in the UK, uh, at least. Would you also 
agree that because this is a societal issue and and uh, the whole paradigm is uh, almost is going to exacerbate massively over the next uh, decade and decades should we not also think about um making sure that everybody takes their due share and and by that i mean not just the society as a whole but the family the responsibility of the family um especially the kids i i think that to put responsibility on a particular age group is not the way that we would should approach ageism we have to though change the mindset of individuals now the mindset of individuals could be the young and it should be the young they need to they need to appreciate what aging is because one day if they're lucky enough they will get to become old which is what you guys mm. mentioned earlier on about how you were brought up under the the islamic faith yeah but also there has to be a responsibility amongst those who are actually at the age of later life to accept to change their mindset so let me give you a couple of examples here because yeah. there's been some fascinating bits of research particularly in the last i don't know 12 to 18 months about the aging process and one of the things that 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 researchers are now looking at which they didn't before is the status of the of the brain as you get old and what they found is that you do not necessarily become fragile when you get old Mm-hmm. there is a fragility it's there but people link that fragility to getting old no it's not research has proven that and there's there's, there's lots of, of also research which now shows that the parts of the brain don't actually deteriorate when you get old they actually are are uh, we we being uh, mm. reborn or rebirth as as the, the expression is mm. so it's fascinating again these stereotypes okay you're going to get old you're going to get dementia you're going to become fragile no you mm. are not and research is proving that time and time again the yeah. answer i think to this whole ageism problem is to is to change the mindset of all ages including those that are old as to what actually being old means in our society and what the challenges of of that are positive aging and again this is fascinating it's been proven by hmm. a a, um, a a a leader in um the research of older people called Dr Becky Levy she's out of Stanford University in, in the US mm-hmm. what she's proven is that by having a positive attitude to aging in older people lengthens and improves the health and well-being of older people sure. by at least 7 years. Hmm. And it's that sort of individual approach that we must change hmm. as well as the structural liberation which I talked about earlier at all sorts of different level if we are going to a tackle ageism in our society hmm. and b reduce it. Hmm. Sure. James I I agree with you. I think yeah I think can be Uh, can not be two opinions on what positivity can actually do for you whether young or old um uh, but if i can follow up on the question that i asked and i don't mean to be impertinent but why would you n- not put the at least some part of the responsibility on the immediate family why why should they 
not be responsible for taking care. After all, parents are responsible uh, for taking care of the young children. Are they not? Until 16, I think, is when the parental responsibility expires. Why should similar responsibility not be given to them when their parents need it most? I think this is a definition of what you mean by responsibility and what I mean okay. by Right. I think that, that where I'm coming from, it's about personal responsibility. It's not about it's not about putting a responsibility on children or people of a younger age or your brothers and sisters or you know whoever your relationship relations. Mm. There should be that respect there. Of course, there should. And I think we've lost that in our current society. Mm. But the important thing is. And I come back to this. It's the personal responsibility of individuals. You cannot become older and think, you know, my responsibility. I haven't got any more responsibilities. I've let I've lived my life. Therefore, I'm you know I'm going to I'm going to give my responsibilities and and the care of myself to my family. I think it's it's much more about, and I think that's quite an old-fashioned idea. But I think it's much more about, you know what, I'm, I'm at a certain age, I can do so much more, and I can contribute so much more to society, and I've still got purpose, and I've still got meaning, and I think that, to, to life. And I think that is far more important than the question of, of responsibility to other, other uh, members of the family. So what would be your advice, uh, then, James, to, uh, to individuals? who want to uh, to help with ageism, ageism in their own communities? Well, I, th- I think, you know, my advice would be to look at how they um, express uh, their language in terms of, of, of uh, uh, looking at older people. I think there's a whole range of things that, you know, one can do uh, and it's not going to be an overnight process. Mm. I mean, if you look at education, I think that the there that there should be a greater uh, dynamic of uh, pupils learning about the age aging process. I mean, there should be students that celebrate their older relatives, for example. You know, you you, you hinted about that would be responsibility, and I think again, it's just an interpretation of what we're talking about. But I certainly think that, that, that students in school should be able to learn and celebrate what is happening to their older relatives and understand that. It enhanced, and indeed, again, enhance the educational opportunities for older people themselves. It doesn't mean, as I've just uh, you know, said a couple of minutes ago, that because you're going to be old, you're going to get dementia. No, your brain actually does increase and does renew itself. But there are other things that, that, that people should do you know, if we look at our popular, popular culture, if you go into a card shop, you will see a number of, of birthday cards which are negative towards people being 60, 70, 80. Those sort of messages are subliminal. And those actually actually reduce the process of positive aging. So getting everybody to become digitally included getting everybody to to look at how media portrays older people getting everybody in the workplace to come together into intergenerational work teams 
and not getting to a certain age and finding yourself forced into retirement. Those are the things. How many times have we seen people that retire and within a few years they have died? Why have they died? Because they haven't been educated into the proper way of positive aging and they've lost their purpose and meaning. If we can bring that back into, into individuals, what, no matter what their age, our society will improve and our society will respect older people as it respects other ages. James Lewis, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to speak to you, James Lewis, and not Emily Swain. So thank you very, very much once again. Have a lovely weekend and peace be with you. I, I go by many names. Thank you, <laughs> Add that to the list. I don't, I don't think our next guest, Emily Swain, is going to like that very much. But yeah, all right. <laughs> it is Friday afternoon. Thank you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Pleasure. Thank Absolutely. You. Feeling is mutual. So that was James Lewis, who is the founder of the charity called Action for Elders. Let me now go straight to our next guest, who is indeed Emily Swain. <laughs> and Emily is a journalist and she's written articles and reporting guidance on stigma and ageism. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very Warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Emily. Thank, you. Uh, thank you for having me. There you are. Excellent. Lovely to have you, Emily. Lovely to have you on the show. Right. So um, how would you describe uh, some of the prevailing attitudes towards ageism in the society here in UK today? Uh, well, uh, I'm American, but I'm in, in general, in Western society in general, I've found that uh, Western society treats ageism as one of its last so-called acceptable prejudices. Right. When people hear stereotypes about against older people, uh, like about sexuality or about energy or whatever, they think, well, that's not a real stereotype if it's based in science, right? But a lot of these stereotypes about age aren't based in science. Uh, for example, there's the stereotype of older people, you know, naturally becoming miserable and depressed as they get older. Uh, and so a lot of pe older people who do have clinical depression don't seek out help because they think it's just part of growing older when it's not. In fact, uh, national surveys out of America show people over 50 have much lower rates of past year depression than the average rate. Uh, younger adults are actually the ones who tend to be more depressed. Emily, how... How um, how would you say how prevalent is it in today's like in in the Western society? And you mentioned Western society. Is it why is it such a Western society issue? Because when we spoke to James as well, and he alluded to my comments at the beginning of the show that I've never actually thought about this. I've never you know to be honest knew that this was such a big huge problem. But he said that's based on your Islamic upbringing. That's based on your faith. Um, and this is more of a Western concept. Why? Why is that the case? Well, in individualist societies where you know you pro <clears throat> sorry promote the individual and, and independence over community, there's a very big fear of becoming dependent on others, mm -hmm. of being viewed as a burden, or of being abandoned by your community if you stop being useful. But and but the thing people need to remember is nobody, nobody is completely self-sufficient. Uh, children, when we're children, you know, we rely on our parents to feed and educate us. Uh, when we're in, our, we're in our working years, you know, we need 
babysitters. We need people to look after us when we're sick. Uh, and when we're older, you know, we need companionship. We need support. Our needs may change over time. But I think what a lot of people forget is that we always need others for companionship and community. Hmm. Okay. Um, and also, how, when we speak about, for example, the, the workforce, when we speak about um, older people working, it says that they, they find you know, a less tolerant work, workplace. And many say that age discrimination is, is quite rampant. How does that look like? How does, that, how does ageism affect older adults in the workforce? And, and what is it that can be done to create more inclusive work environments? Is everything about legislation? Is everything about rules? Is everything about laws? Or does education, as James mentioned before, does that play a role as well? I think they both play a role. Uh, legislation is important, but legislation also needs to be enforced, uh, which often it is not. But the culture also needs to change, and often that starts with the people who are actually in the office, making conscious decisions to include older workers. Mm. So if you want to create a more inclusive work environment, uh, you need to provide opportunities for networking, and continuing education and growth to all of the employees, regardless of age. Just because someone is near the end of their career doesn't mean they can't benefit from learning opportunities or networking functions. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to ask you about social media as well. What what role, or media in general, what, what role do you think that the media plays in, 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 in perpetuating and, and challenging ageist stereotypes? Oh, in terms of social media? Yeah, social well, media or media uh, in general as well. It does do a lot of perpetuating. Uh, there, you see a lot of people using growing older as a punchline or an insult. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the phrase like, hey, boomer, or like hmm. boomer take or hey, boomer, or whatever, uh, where media treats aging as something to be ashamed of or to avoid. Because there's a lot of money in anti-aging uh, products, and if people aren't ashamed of aging, then they won't buy the products. So a lot of it is about, you know, money. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is possible to improve that by improve ageism on social media or media in general. Uh, challenging ageism when you see it on Twitter, or I suppose it's called X now. Yeah. Uh, there's also show it, including older people in your conversation, just like actively just talking to them. Hmm. Having them show up in your commercials or have them join that sitcom cast as something more than a caricature. Show them as the three-dimensional, passionate, interesting people that they are. And you can learn a lot from, yes. Now, I mentioned at the start of the show as well that the uh, pandemic that we went through a couple of years ago, it, that also highlighted this ageist attitude that we have in society so let me ask you this. I mean, you've reported on this. You're a journalist. How has um, the pandemic highlighted or maybe, maybe even exacerbated this attitude that we have in society? Well, uh, because of, there's something called terror management theory. Essentially, when something dangerous happens, like a global pandemic that kills mil millions of people, humans cope with that overwhelming fear by pretending the danger, danger doesn't apply to them, that it's only a problem for 
other people. And as I'm sure you know, COVID has killed people of all ages. Uh, long COVID is actively disabling children and adults of all ages still. Uh, but that inter- information is terrifying for a lot of people. So a lot of people pretend it isn't true. They tell themselves, well, only the old and unwell will be harmed by COVID. I'm safe, so I don't need to take precautions. Mm. Uh, I don't need to get vaccinated or wear a mask or stay home when sick. They treat the elderly as expendable because if because otherwise they'd have to admit to themselves that they are at risk too. And that we all, as a community, need to focus on the problem. Because what's a, what's a uh, something that is a threat to one portion of the community is a threat to the community at large. Hmm. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, no I get it. <laughs> now, um, moving on from this, so how how do we how do we combat that? How do we? Where does it start? I mean, again, I might have asked this question before as well, uh, connecting to what James was was talking about education and schools, about respecting the elderly, the value that comes from from uh, you know the older people in society. What do you think that we as individuals? What what is it that we can do uh, brother daniel was asking the role of the family as well in in, in combating ageism in the local communities and in the in, in the smaller communities as well as on a larger scale to advocate for the rights and dignity of 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 these older adults especially um you know in in light of what you just mentioned of of, of the pandemic all right uh well through my reporting i found one of the most effective ways Uh, you can combat ageism is in your community is to welcome older people into your community, help them become involved. If you have an older neighbor who lives by himself, invite him to your book club. If you have uh, an older relative that lives alone, take them out to lunch or give them a call. These are small, quick gestures, uh, but they are powerful. Uh, Because the more people see older people out and about living their best lives, the more their perception of aging changes to something that's mysterious and scary to something that's just normal. And another... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Oh, and another thing I would say is just to be mindful of your own language. Uh, It might be funny to use things like, oh, geezer or boomer or whatever, but... The more you say it, the more normalized that language becomes. So if you hear other people saying it, call it out. Say, hey, that's not fair. That's, that's ageist. That's me. Make it uncomfortable for the person to use hateful language like that around you. Because even if they don't change their minds the first time, the more they're challenged on their language, uh, more hesitant they'll be, they will be to use ageist words. So when you say these things, invite them to your book club, look out for them, have a conversation, where, where does that start? I mean, is that when we're talking about when you have your own family, when, when you know someone, and, and this is the point that I was getting at, how, do we instill that in our children? Like, Is there a specific age? Um, is there a, a setting in that involved? How how do we how what do you what do you mean by that? Uh, well, I do think that you know if you have a family, hopefully I'm understanding this correctly. Sure. If you have a family and a children, uh, children, 
uh, I think the role of the grandparent is very important and beneficial both to the grandparent and to the child. Science has shown like people, when grandparents are involved, the child, uh, you know, giving affection and advice and wisdom hmm. and resources, the, the child flourishes as well as the older person. I think right now families are very siloed. It, we have couples and then we're all very distant from each other. Yeah. Uh, and I think the trends I'm seeing is that hopefully society will move back towards a more multi-generational unit where we're all together and supporting one another. Okay. Emily, our previous guest, uh, James Lewis, um, was talking about the importance of education around ageism um, uh, to the extent that uh, he said that it's the individual concerned who should begin to, uh, that is the older people, uh, begin to take uh, charge of their own um, mental and physical conditions. What are your thoughts on that? Um, are you saying like it should be like older people who engage in self-advocacy? No, no, older people as in, uh, um, as an individual. So if you're getting older, uh, you know, his point was that uh, uh, it's it's important that you take responsibility of your own health and try and think more positively uh, don't think that you'll have dementia and um, um, and and you know just lead on uh, your lead your life as normal as much as you can oh yes yes okay I, I think I understand what you're saying and I agree I the, I don't recall the exact study but there has been research showing mm. like the more positive yeah. attitudes you have towards aging, the better you will feel as you age, both physically and emotionally. And so educating yourself about ageism, you know, it can help you be a better citizen, but it also helps yourself as you age. Uh, so you know what is realistic to expect rather than just believing all the stereotypes. How important do you think it is for us uh, as, a, as a global society, really, to start thinking about this? Um, uh, because this um, will or is already becoming a, a major problem in many countries, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, globally, our population is aging. So I think it's something, every, no matter what your age, I do believe it's something you should think about because the human race is getting older and there aren't quite as many babies coming in as there used to be. So as a whole, we're all getting older. And so we need to figure out for ourselves what that's going to, what aging is going to look like in our society and what it's going to look like in our personal individual lives. Right. And, and coming to what I think you were hinting at in terms of advocacy of the rights and dignity of older adults, uh, your views and thoughts about that? Uh, I do think, you know, obviously the people most affected should lead the charge, but I do think that, you know, younger or middle-aged folks also have a responsibility to educate themselves about stigma so they can combat it because it won't, stigma is a tricky thing. And in order to fight it, it needs to be a team effort, not just waiting, um, waiting to do something when it affects you, right? I agree with that. 
And it starts, we all need to work on that. We all need to work on that and we all need to work on that as early as possible, isn't it? Yes. Now, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Emily, same journalist and uh, someone who's written articles and reporting guidance on stigma and ageism. Thank you so much for joining us today. Peace be upon you and have a great weekend ahead. Thank you so much once again. Thank you. And I think we can go straight to our next guest, who is Morgan Wine, and he is the head of policy and influencing department that research uh, issues impacting other older people in poverty and lobbies government to support those in later life living in financial hardship. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Morgan. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, so let me ask you first, Morgan, what inspired the establishment of your charity, specifically focusing on poverty in later life? So the charity I work for is called Independent Age, and we've actually been around since the 1800s, and we've always been there to support older people with all of the problems they might face. But more recently, we've been really focusing our attention on older people who have money worries, are financially insecure, might be living in poverty, um, and they get in touch with us and we try and make sure that they're getting all the money they're entitled to and that the government are thinking about them when they make their decisions. How does ageism, Morgan, contribute to the cycle of poverty among older adults? And, and what are some of the key challenges that you are facing these days that you have to then help your, your, your clients with? So I think for us, the biggest way that ageism presents is when people make assumptions that everyone in later life is financially secure. Um, you know, we often get people making comments like, oh, you know, every pensioner owns their own home, doesn't have a mortgage, has lots of savings, things like that. But we know that two million older people across the UK live in poverty and there's lots more who might not technically be in poverty, but they are really, really struggling financially. So that's one of the biggest problems, the assumptions and stereotypes that we believe are ageist. And it means that services and support often isn't targeted at this group of people because it's assumed that they just don't exist. Um, so that's one of the biggest problems that we're coming across. So, But is that is that institutionally, I mean, is that isn't that something that people generally will assume and why would that have such an impact at the services catered to, to older people? Well, so for example, if you were a company and you had a discounted tariff, so energy or broadband or water or something like that, and you needed to promote that mm. discount, if you don't think any older people are in financial insecurity, you're not going to use, you're not going to target them with that discount. Mm. So many older people that we speak to are missing out on money that they are already entitled to because they've never heard that they're entitled to it. So, for example, things like council tax reduction, if you if you live on a low income, you can have that reduced to nothing. Pension credit, which pops up a low pension, 880,000 older people miss out on that money. Hmm. So if those assumptions weren't made, we think more older people would be targeted with support and hopefully find out more easily what they're entitled to. So that support is there. It is It is. It is available, but it's just not promoted. Yes. Or, I mean, obviously, there's, there's. I would say we would like more support. Hmm. So, for example, there could be better financial support for older renters, for example, who are on low income. But there is already existing support 
which older people we speak to have no idea is there. So we think that's something that could be improved. All right. Now, Morgan, let's come to the role of education. In in your work specifically, what role does it play to challenge socially acceptable prejudices against older adults living in poverty? And also I want to connect this to what you know some, our previous guests have said. How much of that responsibility does the onus lie on, on, on the individual as well? Or is that something that it's just not, um, you know, they're, they're just not up to, up for it. Um, I guess it's a mixed picture. You know, everyone everyone's different. I mean, the biggest prejudice that we see, as I've said, is whether it's a prejudice or a misconception or a stereotype, it's that people making that assumption that hmm. everyone in later life is rich. So we work with politicians, other charities, businesses to try and help them see that that's just not the case. Um, you know, to give your listeners an idea of the kind of things that we hear, um, people in later life tell us that the, at the moment they're not washing with warm water because they can't afford their water bills. Um, they're not cooking hot food because they don't want to use their cooker because of the energy costs. So these are obviously major, major problems that lots of people don't know are happening. So we're trying our best to make sure that everyone's informed about the real picture for those two million in poverty. Mm. Um I definitely think there will be some people who may well be living on a very low income that either think it could be worse and they can manage and they can make cutbacks or they are ashamed or embarrassed by the situation that they're in. And we have heard people tell us that the stigma surrounding their situation, it becomes very, very difficult for them to stand, stand for, you know, step up and stand forward and say, I need a bit of help. Hmm. Um, and that's why we're here. You know, we have a free helpline. We have an advice team who can take calls and support you to get all the money you're entitled to if you're a pensioner. But it is difficult for some people to make that first step. And it's not just about the money aspect, isn't it? I mean, it's also the support that you have or should have from your family, from your friends, from you know the circles that you are in. How, how much, like, I mean, do you get any on that support line, that helpline, what is it that people tell you about that? We do hear from family members or friends who are worried about somebody in their life who is um, in in older age. Um, and we obviously will give them information about support that's available and support that's out there. But I would say that the cost of living crisis and living in poverty has an impact on those family relationships. So to give you an example, we spoke to one person who were so worried about money, they were going to have to disconnect from their broadband. And what that meant to them, amongst lots of other things, was, was they wouldn't be able to speak to their family online, which is what they would do, video calls and things like that. We spoke to another woman who told us that she used to have her grandkids over a few times a week. She loved it. But because of money, she's had to reduce that now to a couple of times a week. And when they visit her, she only has coffee because mm-hmm. she can't afford to feed all three of them. So it's having living in poverty, living on low income has a massive impact on family relationships. You know, if your home isn't warm, you don't want people visiting. Yeah. You can be embarrassed. So it has a massive impact. Making sure everyone gets the money they're entitled to is obviously really important. And families can play a huge role in that, in making sure that the people they love are getting everything they're entitled to. 
All right, Morgan, thank you very much for joining us today. Morgan Vine um, joining us here on the Draft Time Show, Head of Policy and Influencing Department. Thank you so much for your time once again, Morgan. Thank you. Take care. 0208687 It is God who created you in a state of helplessness, in a state of weakness. Then he gave you strength after weakness. Then after strength... He gave you weakness um, and a hoary head. This is the circle that God Almighty has described in the Holy Quran. That we start off when we're just children. It's just nothing that we can do on our own. You have to be taught how to walk, how to talk, how to eat and, and, and everything else. There's nothing we can do. And then you reach that stage after weakness, the stage of strength where we think that we can conquer the world and nothing is impossible for us, which is absolutely right. But what we tend to think what we tend to forget at that point in, in life is that this too shall come to pass. And after this period of strength, God Almighty then again will give us a state of weakness. And if we are in that state of weakness um, and you do not get that treatment that you deserve and uh, um, you have these issues that we've just been talking about, and that is not the society that Islam promotes. This is not what the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, taught us and the the point of this verse as well from chapter 30 is not just to tell you that this is how it is I mean it's it's not rocket science this is how it is but what do we learn from that so in other verses of the Holy Quran Allah God Almighty speaks about that if we give you long life if if we give long life to anyone what we we cause him to be reversed in nature. And, and the question that God Almighty then asks us is, that do you not understand? So we all lose that physical strength. We all know that our health is probably not as great as it was in your 20s. And our understanding turns into a, a, a you know, a lack of, of, uh, of comprehension. Our memory might not be there where it was. But all of these things... We cannot uh, learn, um, and we don't really just just read just f- for no reason whatsoever. What is it that we get out of it? The respect for the elderly in society is, is something that the Holy Quran, the Prophet of Islam, the teachings of Islam have upheld from the very get go. And I think this is the reason why we were speaking to our guests and talking to them about this very question as well: the role of the family, the role of your community, and in 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 making sure that the next generation grows up with this feeling. It's not just the love for your grandparents, the love for your aunties and uncles who are a bit older. No, it's not just about that. That right and that love, that compassion and taking care of, of the elderly not it doesn't just expand to your grandparents, but it expands to the whole of society. So this social outcasts, these social outcasts that we have in certain Western societies, that is something that is alarming. We've heard the consequences of, of that 
I mean, there's so many stats that we could have presented to you what the consequences of ageism are and the negative consequences specifically in, in during the pandemic. But the education and awareness, as we've heard from our guests during the program as well, it's something that promotes the understanding of of this problem and, and its impact through education at a very early age through, you know, you can have later on these charities that are working for training programs, public discourse and all of that stuff. That challenges the stereotypes and, and, and promotes that empathy and the respect for older adults. We have seen it in, unfortunately, in, even in this country where you had certain hate crimes, where you had younger generation um, teenagers in their lack of training, education, moral role models, attacking elderly couples, attacking elderly people, which is absolutely, absolutely unacceptable. It's just outright wrong, and that is something that we need to eradicate. But that doesn't start at the age of 16. It doesn't start at the age of 17 or 18 when it's, in my eyes, already too late. It starts at a very, very early age when you educate your children in the setting of your family, in the setting of your home. And in this regard, I think we're talking about the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed. He, this is a, you know, a segue a little bit, a link that I've just thought about. <clears throat> There's a book that he wrote, which is called Way of the Seekers. And in that, we might have mentioned this on, on, on the draft time show here a couple of times as well. There are practical steps that we can apply. And it doesn't only talk about the respect for the elderly. But I think the overall moral condition of people, the moral condition of our society, that is something that needs to be amped up. When we move away from moral obligation, we move away from the concept of a God, uh, the concept of um, religion in general, then these issues, they will come up. You have everything which is interlinked. It's not just a standalone issue here when it comes to ageism, but it is something that is linked to every single little thing that we see going wrong in society. You have um, the the problem of, of lying and fraud and deceit. And all of these things, religion and faith has told us, has, has given us over and over again, this guideline that if we do not have that concept of God in our heads. If we don't understand that on the day of judgment, we will be held accountable, we will be answerable to the actions of ours in this life, then, of course, you will go down that rabbit hole. And you will find yourself in a place where then the society that you have um, does not show that due respect, does not... um, consider them to be useful members of the society. And I'll tell you from personal experience, there is so much that we can learn from the older generations. There's so much wisdom that they can impart to the next generation. You would be surprised. And it again, what I asked, uh, I think, Morgan as well, it's not just sometimes about... Um, you actually doing something for them, you 
if there's any groceries that needs to be done no no sometimes it's the easy the the simple steps the simple things that can create that feeling of 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 you know being valued of being respected of being someone in 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 someone's life and that is just by listening to them despite you know giving them company by hearing what they have to say and that life experience that they have gathered over the many many years um now we're going to take a very very short break here and then concluding today's program we usually do this at the beginning of the show but uh we thought for today we're going to keep it to the end and what we do every friday you might have noticed that is we look at the situation in gaza we look at the situation in palestine look at some of the latest developments over the past week um and also something uh, what uh, anything that his holiness has in mazamsura of the current caliph of the amdiyam community has said in that regard so we're going to take a short break here and then we'll be back after that don't go anywhere stay with us You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. All right, welcome back here to the Draft Time show on the Voice of Islam. Uh in the first half of the program we were speaking about the conscription debate you've heard the news a couple of weeks ago and the outcries and the reactions were all just all over social media and all over um the country that is something that we spoke about in the first half of the program in the second half we spoke about ageism and you know challenging some of the stereotypes promoting the understanding education and what islam has said i mean it's it's very clear that islam has defined the rights of parents over children and vice versa of course and then on the other hand it emphasizes the service and respectful behavior to parents um it commands parents to treat their children with due understanding and regard and as well as to handle them in such a way that um engenders in them feelings of dignity and self-respect but at the same time for us the commandment is very clear that if and once your parents reach that old age we have no right we have no um room to even say uh, or express any kind of words of uh disgust or that they might be a burden on you that is absolutely a no go and that's something that again as i said something that we need to Im- implement something that we need to adapt something that we need to um give our children at a very very early age and not um you know some some time later on in life that they will realize that themselves Brother Daniel, a lot of things have happened unfortunately not great things in this past week. What is your analysis? Yeah, as you said, unfortunately not um, any good news to give uh uh nothing positive actually. So, um as our listeners uh, would have seen that um United Nations Security Council resolution was vetoed. it was uh, brought on by algeria and asked for a ceasefire immediate ceasefire in gaza and that was vetoed by united states um 
so that uh, unfortunately um, is not going to be supported. A ceasefire that is by the highest uh, or the most important UN body anytime soon, uh, it seems, unless the US government changes its stance, which looks quite unlikely in the immediate future. And meanwhile, um, unfortunately, 29,514 Palestinians have lost their life. And according to uh, the uh, figures provided by the health ministry in Gaza, 69,600 people uh, have been injured. So that's uh, close to about 100,000 people who have been either killed or injured as a result of this conflict. Uh, I should also add that out of these 29,000 people who have, uh, who have died, about 21,000 of them were women and innocent children, and the revised death toll uh, from the October 7 attacks, as confirmed by Israel, stands at 1,139. So those are the unfortunate numbers there. Uh, Gaza's uh, health ministry also reports that uh, Israeli forces today have re-entered the besieged Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus after withdrawing from it briefly. And the condition in, conditions over there uh, as you would expect, are deteriorating. Over 100 people actually have been killed in the last uh, 24 hours uh, in in Gaza. And uh, Israel continues to insist that it will launch a ground offensive in Gaza soon as well. Another hospital, the Al-Amal Hospital in Gaza, southern city of Khan Yunus as well, also suffered significant damage from an Israeli attack after being under siege uh, for weeks. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately... Then we had something here in the parliament yesterday as well. Yes, uh, so... Um, SNP... Yes, so there was an SNP resolution um, which, uh, uh, which, which was supposed to be tabled, but then um, as part of the uh, powers rested with the Speaker, which uh, is a matter of debate as we speak, um, the, uh, that wasn't allowed to be carried through and a Labour amendment was uh, was put forward for vote. So that uh, um, so SNP is all, has been an, up in arms because of that and uh, I think around 60 MPs have now expressed uh, no confidence in the current Speaker. So, so that's happening uh, as well. Um, in, in Gaza itself... Um, or the other development, I should say, around Gaza is that happening, is what's happening in the International Court of Justice. So mm. it is hearing um, uh, on whether or not to give an advisory opinion, whether Israel's occupation in, uh, in Palestinian territories um, is um, uh, what sort of consequences it has on uh, on the people living there. A team of UN uh, experts, um, uh, sorry, the, the UK has, uh, has argued Against the ICJ giving an advisory opinion, so the UK has actually said that uh, they sh- uh, that the um, court should not even give yeah. uh, an opinion, unfortunately. And in the last uh, few seconds, uh, Switzerland has um, uh, has said that uh, uh, this the, what's happening in um, in Israel at the moment in Gaza at the moment is um, uh, is quite unfortunate, and Norway has also said that the settlement activity which uh, Israel has recently announced again that it will continue is not going to be favorable for any um, suitable any solution there. So thank you it. very much for that. Aizarabani, Aisha Tahir and Tahmina Tahir would like to say thank you to our production and research team, also to Sharia in the tech room and thank you to you as well for listening.
listening in to today's Draft Time show. We'll be back on Monday tomorrow morning. SML will welcome you at 10 a.m. Don't forget. Um, so from all of us here, assalamu alaikum. Have a great evening. Ahead.